What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Changeover Podcast. I'm here to introduce today the first episode of the Coaches Corner, where we get to pick the minds of some of the best coaches in the game. Our first um, guest on the Coaches Corner is a four-time ATP winner and an Olympic bronze medalist. He's Taylor Dent. Evan, AJ, Justin, and I were all lucky enough to work with Taylor in our years living in Texas. So it was always in, in the back of our mind as one of the coaches to have on on the program. So thank you to Taylor for coming on. Um, enjoy the episode, and if you have any questions for us, please send them in, comment in the YouTube down below, and don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. Enjoy the episode. Taylor, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to see you guys. Yeah, it's good nice to see you. Doing. How, uh, how are things at, at the Birch? What's, uh, what's it been like? Uh, it's, you know, as you guys know, it's, it's kind of the same old thing. Um, for me personally, the, the biggest thing is, is my time investment going into Liam's tennis. My, my second son, he's 11 years old, has been just uh, continually increasing. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's kind of, I guess, the new thing. Other than that, you know, I'm just helping the kids that come through the academy. Um, you know, always get a couple of, you know, pros, either local or just stopping through that come by. And, you know, just, just try to give as much, uh, I don't know, I guess I, I feel like my, my role is more of just a, a second opinion, you know, kind of consulting. Do you, um, what's the difference that in your opinion that you've had from coaching the different levels? So whether that's juniors to the pros, to the, to the club members, like how do you separate, um, I guess your coaching style to accommodate for the, for the goals of, of the session? Well, I think you just said it. I think it just depends on what the goals are. And I think that makes it really hard on me if the goals are not clear. Um, you know, like we, we talk about, you know, I work with one group of, of ladies at the at the club and their goal is really just to kind of climb the rankings as much as they can with the game that they have and the partners that they have. So we talk about sneaky little tactics that just, you know, we're not really working on a profound change in their game. We're just working on maximizing the tools that they have and putting them in positions on the court that, you know, they get to play with their best strokes as often as possible. So can you give us an example kind of, of a, one of the tactics? Yeah. So it, it's kind of cheeky. The and, playbook's and the getting ladies, out of here. Yeah. The, other, the, other ladies, <laughs> the other ladies don't like it much. So I'm very big for, for those guys. Uh, put their forehands in the middle of the court as much as possible because I, I hope I'm not saying this uh, – I don't mean this to be in a negative way. It's just, you know, at that, at that level, the skill to get the ball outside of the middle of the court is not very good. So when we create like little um, formations that start the point where they are always putting their forehands in the middle of the court, man, that, that makes poaching so much easier. That makes putting those high floaty balls away so much easier than watching them kind of struggle with the backhand a little bit. Also, another tactic is pairings. You know, in some of these teams, you have – Ladies that love playing at the net and they just are all over the place going kamikaze style, they need someone who doesn't mind being at the baseline retrieving. So just kind of putting those patterns together. So it's just, it's simple stuff like that, that, you know, I think the, the ladies just, you know, once you explain it to them and just say, look, we're just trying to maximize the situation here. We're not trying to get you to serve like Nick Kyrgios. We're just yeah. trying to use the tools we got. You know, so I, I feel like, you know, getting back to your point, Working with anybody, I feel like is is relatively comfortable for me if, if there's a clear defined goal. If if the goal is all over the place, then I don't like it so much, you know, because then I don't really know kind of where we need to invest our time. If we're, if we're talking about working with a kid that wants to be on his high school tennis team, 
you know, out here, that just means let, let's get a little faster. Let's be consistent. Let's make sure we're not double faulting and boom, you know, we're there. If we're talking about, you know, Liam, my son, he says he wants to win Grand Slams. I turn on the TV. I show him how Djokovic is playing, how, how Alcaraz is playing. I'm like, these are the guys you want to beat. So you're going to have to absolutely be crushing the ball and, and, and being a physical beast. So that just brings a different challenge to the table. And how, like, how is it for him? being so young and having to like what's his mindset like towards playing this kind of way because i'm sure at times it's not that easy for him to play this style of tennis or try to play this style of tennis all the time yeah it, it that, i think that question is huge and uh, he does a good job so far i'm not going to say that he hasn't struggled in the past or he won't struggle in the future but um he works with this other young boy spends a lot of time with him and the other boy has a tough time with playing so aggressive and losing or missing so many shots. And I try to come at it a, a few different ways. And I asked this other young boy, I said, so what's your confidence level going into a match? And, you know, predictably, he would answer like the rest of us, you know, like four out of ten. You know, not really sure how this is going to go, mm -hmm. you know. And I asked Liam because Liam was standing right there. And Liam actually answered the question correctly. He said, well, I don't understand the question. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, if you're asking me my confidence in doing what I'm supposed to do, which is I'm going to fight hard and I'm going to play the right way, my confidence level is a 10. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do those things. There's no question about it. But if you ask me my confidence level in winning the match, you know, he's like, I don't know, a zero? Like, it, almost irrelevant. And that's kind of what Liam and I talk about all the time is, you know, everybody gets attracted to playing well. Everybody gets attracted to focusing on winning. And those are really toxic thoughts if you let that consume your brain. If you go out there and you're focused on competing, if you're focused on playing the right way for, for you, whatever that, that is, then you can rest easy and you're giving yourself the best chance to play well. You're giving yourself the best chance to win. And, and you can kind of have a confident peace, like an intense, an intense mindset, but a, a calm emotional state, which is kind of what you go for as, a, as an athlete, I would assume, yeah. for all sports. Yeah, true. Was there a period in your career that you felt like you were more inclined to be a coach after your career and be able to share what, I guess, what you've learned with other people? Um, once was, I it always, was it always in, in the plans, like you just figured that you would coach after your career? Um, I figured that it was always a possibility. I didn't, I didn't really look forward to it or, or, look down on it or anything like that. I just, you know, it wasn't really something I thought about until I started commentating and everybody who heard me commentate um, said that, you know, I have, I have good information. I have a, a, a different kind of take on, on when I watch matches and all this sort of stuff. And then I gave a few lessons and, and, you know, uh, you know, I guess explaining things from a, a unique background because shoot, I mean, I grew up with, in my opinion, one of one of the greatest tennis coaches, you know, around with my dad. So I've heard everything he's had to say, and, and I've grown up around other great tennis coaches as well. So, you know, it, it kind of just made me think like, well, shoot, with that kind of experience, it, it, it makes sense that I would, you know, take advantage of that. So yeah. how do you think uh, what you learned from from Phil uh, influenced you as a coach? Like, are there, are there any takeaways from his coaching style or his philosophies on the game? Yeah, I think it's huge. And I, I think that, you know, it just kind of makes me 
appreciate that there are different coaching styles and and you you guys know as as well as i do like if you're if you're out here i mean my dad is is very much about what the stroke looks like stroke production he he wants the stroke to look appropriate and that's great um jenny you know my wife she's very much about body position very much about footwork uh i tend to be more about you know what I don't care if your forehand looks like Tiafos or Jack Sox. I just want a good ball. You know, give me a good ball. Be able to put it where it needs to go, um, and and uh, and tactically making sure you're making the you know kind of efficient decisions tactically. If we're talking about you know uh, you know higher level tennis and stuff like that, so I guess you know growing up around my dad, I have a tough time thinking that any coach is really wrong. You know, I, I've just seen too many coaches do good things i come back to the same thing well what's the goal what's the coach's goal what's the player's goal for this scenario and then you know if, if that decision lines up with that goal then it's right and and, and the other thing is you're never going to get two coaches that agree you know it's, it's it's like you know talking to talking to your best friend you're not going to agree on everything you know I've, I've heard i've seen you and justin to have a <laughs> twice. it gets a little heated from time to time <laughs> <laughs> um man that's you got me off my uh off my game here with that with that comment because do you remember when we were what was the argument that we had over the coke the coke van do you remember this do you remember justin or I, this month this month thought that a coca-cola truck was bringing random supplies ah yes yes <laughs> Like you can rent us, a coke truck. I remember us arguing about this, and you got uncomfortable <laughs> and you left, Taylor. Do you remember that? Probably one of one of many times. I'm like, okay, I'm not really. The volume is too much for me. We'll see you guys later. That's funny. All right, um, let's move to this. So, um, how did you go about goal setting? Because I remember Ooh. when I had surgery, uh, I read the book um, "It Takes What It Takes" with Trevor Moad. And then we also did some work with with Chad as well on, on goal setting and visualization, that sort of stuff. So what's your experience um, with goal setting and how did you go about it, I guess, in your playing career now as a as a coach? Uh, I, I think um, work backwards, get the dream, right? Get the big dream that gets you excited. And I, and I think it's important that the dream gets you excited because when you're doing the day to day grind of the smaller goals, it's not fun. It's work. It's a job. And, and so you need that, that exciting dream to kind of inspire you through those, those rough times, um, you know, either emotionally or physically. Right. So, so I think you work backwards, you start with the dream and then you kind of break it down. Well, to get there, I need this, I need this, I need this. And then I think I had, I had great experience coming back from my uh, surgeries um, when the goals were actually small and, and it made sense because when I was in bed for a while, I started playing these uh, these computer games. And basically, the way they do these these achievements is they're very attainable, small achievements. And there's a psychological um, benefit to that. Like your brain uh, releases endorphins when you feel like you've accomplished something. So when I was coming back from my surgeries, I set the the goal of just walking down the street and back. You know, and it was an easy goal. It was achievable. And you know, from there, you just kind of build confidence. And I would just say, make the goal easy. You know, that, that's what I would say. And then set the next one and make it easy, make it achievable. Because bottom line is your your body uh, responds well to success. Your mind responds well to success. So just kind of almost guarantee that success. So coming out and saying, my goal is to play well today, that's scary. You yeah. can't control that. 
you know, that you're not guaranteed to play well today, no matter how mentally focused you are, no matter how well you prepare. But maybe you can say the goal is, man, I just want to work hard for 30 minutes. That's all I want. That's doable. You know, and you can feel good about that. And, and, and so I would take that concept and apply it to whatever we're talking about. And like, once you got to walking and playing and back into tournaments, I'm sure you had big goals of eventually getting back into the top 20, maybe top 10 and winning a slam. How did you progress those achievement goals? Or was it always a matter of what I can, what I can control myself? It's always, it, it was always coming back to what I can control myself for sure. Okay. I, I believe that basically if let's just say, um, and I'm not saying I was right in this, there were, there were things that I wish I pursued in my tennis that were different than what I did pursue. But let's just assume I was, I was kind of on the right track is when I came back, I believe that I could not serve in Bali anymore on my second serve. My first serve, the percentage needed to be higher. Um, but I, my win percentage on my first serve was one of the best in the world. So I was content to serve volley off my first serve. Um, I knew that I needed to stay back on my second serve. So I'm like, okay, well, so I need, I still need to come in on my second serve. So I need to create some patterns that are just going to cover up my flaws from the baseline and get me to come to the net. Um, and, and so what I would do is the small goal there would be to spend X amount of time on those patterns, then go out, try them in a practice set, try them in a tournament and get some kind of real data and say, okay, these patterns do work. I just need to get better at them. So that means let's just spend more time on these things. And as you guys know, you guys have played enough tennis is that, you know, improvement is not a mystery. It's just spending time doing things, uh, in, in you know, in a, in a certain way, in the right way. And you'll, you'll improve. I mean, it, it, there's no coincidence that the more you do something, the better you get. Can you give an example of like what you described about your pattern to cover up a certain flaw in your game? Can you give an example of, of like yeah. the second serve play that you would do or, or something like that? Yeah. So one of the, the patterns that I used to set up a ton um, from the baseline when I got stuck at the baseline was, uh, you know, I, I used to slice my backhand a ton. I like my backhand topspin, but I just, I sliced my backhand a lot. I felt like I could hit it. So anyway, um, my forehand was rough. Like my forehand was the whole reason why I served in volley. I just, I either hit it pancake flat and mock five and I would make, you know, 20% of those, or I would roll it with spin. I couldn't get that ball that Federer gets or, you know, Nadal or those guys got where it was driving and spinning. Um, so, uh, the, the, my favorite pattern to set up because people would just kind of pick on my backhand cause it was a slice or if they hit to my forehand, I'd roll it just nice and slow, high head, not even heavy too, just high blooper high. down the line. <laughs> I wish it was high heavy. High, little high slow is hilarious. High slow against and, uh, Nadal down the line is not going to work. Not, not, maybe not against that, maybe <laughs> not against that, but I would try to entice them to come uh, cross court to my backhand. And then my backhand, I would try to really hit a, uh, a, a pretty driving slice down the line and two things would happen from there. Either they would go cross court, which is going to happen 80% of the time. And typically they're going to try and find an angle, keeping it low and short wide. So I'm cheating on that. I'm just getting ready to just sprint up there, cut off the angle and shove that up the line and just follow that in. And so that was kind of the place that I like setting up the most. And if they did take that slice back down the line, I would, uh, I would just, you know, I would either, if, if they didn't hit it good enough, I would just try to go back down the line. I'm just trying to bait them into that forehand cross court so I can shove it down the line and come in. So that was one of my 
one of my good successful plays. But uh, as forehands got better, that 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 play worked less and less. Okay. And, and do you think? When it co- sorry, sorry. Go on, Justin. Go on. So when it comes to to patterns, were you big on? So were you big on trying to be tactical in a match in terms of explaining somebody's weakness, or you just wanted to play the patterns that you liked as much as you could? Yes, to both. So okay. one of the uh, one one of the things that just you know kind of changed my perspective on playing opponents' weaknesses and this stuff is I remember I was playing a match against Guillermo Coria when he was like four in the world of Miami. I think you guys have probably heard the story, and uh, it was while it was Miami just being played at Kibis Game, which was the USCA headquarters. And I was one of the, the the kids coming up that was supposed to you know be doing well, and so I'm walking around. And, you know, everybody was so nice and, and giving me their input on how I should tactically play this match. You know, just, <laughs> so nice. I would, they were very nice. And, and I couldn't go 10 steps without a, a new take. So on generous. How to play this I, think, match. I think you had, you told us that the better you get, the more coaching you will receive. Absolutely. Like at one stage, I was the best serving volleyer in the world. And uh, I'm getting told by everybody how to serve volley. I, I thought that was ironic, but it's just the truth. It's, it's yeah. and, and I think people come from a good place. And so you just, you know, you accept it and and, uh, and and move on. So I'm getting ready to play Guillermo Coria. I got so overwhelmed with all these, uh, all this advice I was getting. I said, forget it. I'm just going to go play my game because my game did not match up well against this guy. I love to come in and attack the backhand. And at this stage, he had the second or third best backhand on tour behind like Hewitt Nagasin. So I, it doesn't look good. And I'm just like, I'm like, forget it. I'm just going to go attack the backhand. And I'm going to adjust if I have to. And sure enough, I went out there and he had a bad day with his backhand. And I think I won like four and two. Like it was not a close match. And so that's where I think that you start the matches with your strengths. And part of the the good thing about being a tennis player and, and your responsibility is you got to think on the fly out there. If things aren't working, then you need to make little adjustments that are either highlight your strengths better or highlight their weaknesses more. Yeah. Um, do you think there's anything that you would have done differently um, as a like when you were a player, like in your preparations or in your development, and then also as a as a coach? Like, would you do you think there's anything that you? Um, I don't. I want. I don't want to say regret, but more like learn from and would would do differently, or maybe you already implemented it differently into your into your coaching. Um, I would say as a player, I wish that I would have understood where the game was going a little bit more than what I did when I was younger. That That's one. Uh, obviously, the game went to a lot more spin than I believed when I was younger. So that's why I hit my forehand so flat. Um, and that, like I said, that forehand really limited me substantially. I, I don't think with a forehand, I don't think I would have been a Grand Slam champion. But, you know, going from fourth round of slams, I think I would have gotten to quarters, maybe some semis. Um, I needed to return differently. Um, so, so from a player, that was one standpoint. Another standpoint was uh, I wish I would have just been a little bit more open to changing things. You know, I, I was I I knew that I needed to do things differently, but I thought that if I just worked on them hard enough, they'd get better. And that is true to a certain degree, but shots if you hit them a certain way, they have limitations. There's just no, no getting around it. So I wish I would have just been a little bit more courageous. I, I think it came from a place of fear uh, that I didn't want to make changes because I had a certain amount of success a, a certain way. Um, but that's still, changes. that not that also a positive in a way that a lot of 
from from my experience at least talking to a lot of players and being around a lot of good players like i feel like the better players are extremely stubborn in, in many ways so in a way that being stubborn yeah. is a positive as well right it, it's a double-edged sword i mean if you're positive if you're stubborn in a way that helps you that's great you know what i mean or, or i should say even in a way that doesn't hurt you so badly that's great that's awesome but if you're stubborn in a way that it, it, it actually hurts you then not good you know yeah. You know, so I, maybe I would because just say of what that. you said, like the source of it, like you said, out of fear, like maybe it's the the source of the stubbornness, like maybe you're yeah. in in that scenario. Because I'm sure, in many ways, you were very stubborn, and it was very positive for you too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, hundred percent for sure. Like you said, I was just stubborn the wrong way for the wrong reason on my forehand. You know, okay. with with other things, I I thought it was. I thought you know, again, stubbornness. But again, most athletes are stubborn, so you you have to kind of battle that. And, and the idea is. You just have to make sure that you're being stubborn about the good things. And, and sometimes, you know, athletes can get blinded, you know? So, yeah. um, so I, as a I, coach, yeah, there you go. No, yeah. So as a coach, what I've learned, I'd say the toughest thing for me as a coach is I love, I love the tennis that I couldn't play. I love watching Djokovic play. I love watching Alvarez play. I'm highly passionate about that brand of tennis. And sometimes that's not the product that, uh, you know, some of the customers want. And I get that, but they will say it is. And then, you know, the cost, the cost, the sacrifice to play that type of tennis is exceptional. And, you know, there's not a whole lot of people, there's not a huge percentage of people that are willing to pay that cost. And I think one of the regrets, um, that I have as a coach is I've, I've tried to teach too many of, of the people that come to me um, kind of how to hit a ball like that, how to, how to play tennis like that. And it really does take a huge time investment to, to be able to pull that off. I mean, it's a high skill thing. It's, it's not an easy thing. And I, I sometimes just even get stuck in this place of, well, people come to me for my experience and my expertise at that level. You know, you don't need me to teach you how to win a high school match. There's plenty of great coaches, you know, within three, four, five minutes that can do, you know, do that for you. And I find I, I catch myself in that kind of position where it's like, well, they're asking me to teach them how to do it like, you know, this person. And I can certainly show them that. But are they really going to invest the time to make that beneficial? I, I find the answer more often than not is no. And so I, I don't know if, I, if that's a regret or just something that I'm kind of living out now. Like I, I, I get just get caught straddling that line yeah. a lot. I feel like it's, it's part of what we talked about at the beginning, like adjusting the goals for the different yeah. levels and different groups and whatnot. So, but I, yeah. I feel like from our conversations over the last few years, it sounds like something that you've been working on adjusting to and, and that sort of stuff. I try to warn people. I try to warn people. You know, I just, I had, I had a young girl, nine years old, nine years old. And this girl's talented, you know, and, and the father says, you know, I want her to learn how to play offensive tennis. And you guys could only imagine how that makes me feel like that, that. That gets me going. Like my engines are revved up, ready to go. Let's rip some balls, you know, but I'm learning that it's like, okay, just understand this is, this is the hard road, which you're going for. You know, I was just talking with my, my dad this morning when, when I was working with Liam, and it's just like, it's just such a bummer how many shots you have to have 
if you want to play offensive tennis, you know, and we're just going through all the different shots that you have. Whereas if you want to just be a, a solid player, you got to have some sacrifice to be a great athlete. But after that, you know, you're, you're kind of talking about your forehand and your backhand need to be solid, um, you know, and everything else needs to be okay. Um, and, and so it's, it's just, like I said, I think I've learned my lesson that I've warned the parents, like the time commitment has to be exceptional and the courage to miss has to be exceptional to, to play that offensive tennis. Yeah. I heard, um, I think there was, what was it? Alcaraz's match that he lost in the open. What was it? The semis. I think Ferrer was telling him a lot about being brave, you know? So it goes exactly to what you're saying. Like he likes to play that brand of tennis and Ferrer was telling him like, to be brave, like, and on these balls, like, be brave in these points. Yeah, and, and that's not saying like missing can't be the worst thing. If missing is the worst thing that can happen out there, then how can you be brave? How can you go for your shots and be okay with it? You know, and I, I think that's a huge part of that that brand of tennis. You know what I mean? That yeah. brand of tennis, you have to be brave because if you know, I was telling you, just talking about Liam today, it's just like, man, if if you want to beat Alcaraz you're going to have to do massive damage because if you don't do damage to him, what's he going to do to you? He's going to yeah. beat you up. He's going to bully you around. So you have to be brave to do that damage. You have to be willing to miss. And to wrap it up, so we discussed about you wish you had an idea where the game was going when you were a player. So what's about yeah. now? Where do you see the game going in the next few years? Do you have any no idea? idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, say, I'd say, you know, I have some strengths as a coach or a, a, as a person. <laughs> This is not one of them. I do not do a good job of seeing where the game is going or playing that game. I don't even like the conversation that much. Um, I just would say this is if we go off of what history has shown, uh, the game is not the, the, the game in the sense of the surfaces or it's not going towards serve volley that much. It's not going towards a flatter ball. It's not going towards faster services. Now the, the, the guys are hitting shots faster, but it's with a ton of spin. I mean, the amount of spin these guys are generating, it's crazy. The game is not going towards, I'm going to hit through the opponent as hard as I can. It's kind of hitting away from the opponent generating weak balls. The only caveat I put in that is, you know, with how far back guys are returning now, um, it does bring in serving and volleying a lot more. Like you see Alcaraz normally, he beats up Medvedev because Medvedev's so, standing so far back and he can hit the serve wide, come in and clean up a nice easy volley. Uh, normally that didn't happen, obviously, this U.S. Open. Um, so that's interesting to, to see that happen. You see, um, what was your record at for fastest serve? Wasn't it one plus No, that was uh, 149 was the French. Uh, he broke my record at... Uh, at the U.S. Open, my record at the U.S. Open was 147. Okay. I think within a few serves, he hit one at 147 and two at 149. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Clock was broken. Yeah. That's fast. That's yeah. moving. Anyway, anything else we, we should cover before we roll? Do you have anything uh, to add, Taylor? Any questions? Anything you would like to say? No, just it's good to see you guys. I'm glad you guys are doing good. That's nice. We need to take a visit. Come see everybody. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for coming on, Taylor. We appreciate the time. Uh, thanks for, for showing. I guess this is the first episode, like I said, of of this segment of, of our podcast. So it was a pleasure and, and we're glad that you came on and, and helped us with it. So thank you. Of course. Pleasure. Thanks, guys. Right. Good seeing you. Thank you. Thanks for watching, everybody. See you guys in the next one.